The Politocrat is brought to you by the great people at Anchor. Anchor is such a great place to go if you want to get started in podcasting. And it's easy and it's free. Anchor, marvelous stuff, marvelous. And I'm so grateful to the folks at Anchor for getting me going with The Politocrat. If you want to get going and be heard on Apple, on Spotify and everywhere podcasts can be, Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Betty Wright passed away just before I recorded this episode of The Politocrat. Betty Wright was a soul superstar, a musician singer, writer. She was one of the very best that we had. And like other legends, like other greats, like other pioneers, she was treasured, she was greatness, she was brilliance. Betty Wright, in a weekend of sad passings, Little Richard, Andre Harrell, Betty Wright is part of a trio of sad, devastating departures from this planet. Betty Wright will surely and sorely be missed. Rest in peace, Betty Wright. Welcome to The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. And here in the U.S., it is Mother's Day, Sunday, May the 10th, 2020. I'm Will Blitzer in Washington. Thanks very much for watching. I'll be back tomorrow at 5 p.m. Eastern for another special edition of The Situation Room. But before I go, I want to mark what happened Friday morning. Another terrible signpost in the crisis of our time. April's jobless numbers. The statistics are beyond staggering. The U.S. economy lost 20.5 million jobs in April alone. The worst single-month loss in the United States ever. Over the past seven weeks, by the way, more than 33 million Americans have lost their jobs and filed for unemployment. Even potentially more alarming, the unemployment rate of 14.7% may be low, as it may be undercounting millions of Americans uh, laid off workers who were under stay-at-home orders and were not looking for new jobs in April. We've spent weeks talking about the public health crisis, which is truly horrendous. There are now more than 78,000 confirmed deaths here in the United States. But the economic crisis here is also awful. And sadly, the fallout will continue. There are increasing cases of drug addiction, 
depression, suicide, and homelessness. Many people are having trouble putting food on their tables. You can see the very long lines of people waiting at food banks across the country. Our government leaders, indeed all of us, we need to address these issues and help these people as well. Good night and stay safe. That was Wolf Blitzer of CNN on Saturday, signing off from his program, The Situation Room. And as I watched that footage that you just heard, I had two feelings about it. One was, oh, it's great that Wolf Blitzer, that somebody on one of these corporate news media 24-hour cable networks is actually speaking up on camera and editorializing and saying something about those who have been marginalized and forgotten during this pandemic, largely out of sight and out of mind. But I also, at the very same time, had a dual competing thought that opposed the first thought that I had. And that was, why has it taken a Wolf Blitzer or a CNN anchor of any kind so long to speak out about these issues? These issues were in full existence before this pandemic ever came along. These issues where poor people have difficulty getting food because it's expensive or because food is out of reach from them and it's five, six miles away and they don't have cars or they simply the food that they have is not healthy or the health care that they have is inadequate or non-existent or the homeless populations which have been in America for decades, especially after the Vietnam War. Many, many homeless people are, in fact, veterans of wars, particularly of the Vietnam War and some of the more recent wars, like the one in Afghanistan, like the one in Iraq. Why did it take a pandemic for Wolf Blitzer, or anybody on CNN for that matter, to editorialize in the way that you just heard? I think there's a telltale sign for the answer. And the answer is in the economy. The answer is in the very numbers that Wolf Blitzer quoted to you. The answer is in the very numbers that were issued, as he pointed out, by the Department of Labor about the fact that 20 point five million jobs were lost in the U.S. in the month of April alone. That is more jobs in one month than over the last 12 or 13 years, which is real cause for alarm, not only for the people who have lost those jobs, but all, all, always for, and obviously for, 
the companies who have had to cut back and for the economic global structure. Because what it means, very simply, is that the infrastructure for companies to survive and for the economy to be what it should be in any given time is going to be severely diminished. You are going to have deep, deep problems socially in this country. And that is really the genesis of this episode of the politocrat today. One of the things that I am really looking at is these numbers. And one of the things I'm also looking at is the media's focus and how the media has shifted its focus from talking about people and people dying now to talking about the economy. Granted, these two things can coexist together and they do. But what I think has happened is that the news media in the United States, in particular, the corporate news media, and it's happening to an extent in the United Kingdom as well, have decided to completely shift the coverage altogether to talk of reopening and talk of getting people back to work. And what I think this is born out of is not just the numbers, which are obviously very important, these Devastating numbers of people unemployed and jobs lost. 33.5 million people over the last seven and a half weeks have filed for unemployment claims. And those are just the successful filings. That's not to mention, by the way, the people who have had trouble getting through to these hotlines or the people who've had trouble getting through on the web pages only to find them crashing only to find the phone numbers that they call, they get through, but then they are hung up on with some automated hang-up because there's no live person because they are swamped with an infrastructure that is very weak and antiquated. Not only is it about the issues of people trying to get through. But of those 33 and a half million people who did get through, how many of them were able to get their unemployment benefits? How many of them were actually able to be paid benefits? And let's look even deeper than that. Was what they paid in line with what they were supposed to get based on this $2 trillion stimulus package from March. And how many of these 33.5 million people received their stimulus check? How many of those people got exactly what they were supposed to get based on what they were told by the government, by congressional leaders? by Steve Mnuchin. You think it's all well and good to talk about the fact that people are needy, but people have been needy for ever in the United States. And it is very sad to me that it takes a pandemic 
for some people to start talking about it. Quite frankly, I am of the mind that it is those who are in charge of the corporate news media who own certain networks, who own the companies that own those networks, who are actually the ones dictating this coverage. And the reason I think that is, is pretty simple. It is because that the individuals who are the CEOs of these companies and corporations are the very people who are now facing the heat and the fire and seeing that their companies are facing some rough times. And so they are now asking the media that they control and own to start sounding the alarm that they are concerned about, sounding their own alarm, their own concern. Ring the bell. And I think that that's where a lot of this is coming from. Now, I recognize that that is a cynical view. But it doesn't mean that the view is not an accurate one or is not a credible one. I do often wonder, as genuine as Wolf Blitzer may have been on his own accord, whether or not he could have been able to put that view on the air without giving a heads up to his bosses. Surely he has editorial control to a degree. He's been at CNN pretty much since the start. CNN, by the way, just recently had its 40th anniversary. May the 1st, 1980 was the very birth of CNN, the start of CNN in the United States and globally. That's when it gave birth. And Wolf Blitz has been there virtually from the start. My wondering is, is that surely Wolf Blitzer could not have just decided, well, I'm going to just go on the air and say this. Anyone who knows television, and I have been on television on a number of occasions and have been part of a program, in fact, several years ago. It was a short-lived experience, but it was a good experience. Everybody and anyone who knows how television works knows that everything is scripted down to the T that is crossed and the I that is dotted. And so keeping that in mind, there is no way on earth that Wolf Blitzer would have been able to just go on the air and say that without having the script reviewed and revised and checked and also getting the okay of those who are the producers and editorial content people and probably most likely his boss. Now, I could be wrong about all of that. Maybe Wolf Blitzer does have complete editorial control over what is being said by him on the Situation Room. But the point of this thought is that these times are very difficult in case you didn't know. I'm sure you did. There was always food bank lines. 
I've walked through the city of San Francisco. I've walked through the city of New York. I've walked through various cities and I've seen people waiting on lines for food. There was no news reporter or anchor person talking about helping the needy. There was no anchor person giving an editorial about helping the needy and feeding them. In fact, what we've done as a country and what many societies have done, but particularly here in the United States, what we've done as a country is ignore the homeless. We take a very contemptuous view of the homeless. We look down upon them. There are people I know personally who look down upon the homeless. To the point in which I have decided to just sever ties with them. There is only so much conversation you can have with someone that you think is a quote-unquote friend. But when you hear people say things like, They chose to be homeless, echoing that Ronald Reagan nonsense from the 1980s. When you hear people thinking like that, when you hear people looking down on the homeless and conveniently not looking up at the richest 1% and at the systemic structures in the society, that engender poverty, that breed poverty, that actually create poverty. When you look at, and, and without looking also at the very structures that have billions and trillions of dollars that could have eradicated poverty and homelessness last week, if it chose to, if it wanted to. And instead of looking at all of those structures and looking at, well, why haven't, those in government, why haven't those in these institutions thrown a whole lot of money out of military and into helping people get homes and putting roofs over their heads and feeding them and getting them decent jobs like FDR would have done in the 1930s and into the 1940s. What most of us tend to do, not all of us, but what a large segment of the American society everyday person tends to do is look down on the homeless. Talk about them like rag dolls. No, I walked past this homeless person and she smelled. Oh, those homeless people are out there building an encampment. Oh, those homeless people, they set up right in front of my door. Oh, those homeless people, they've just kind of, they smell and they're, they're always sleeping right near my door, right by the apartment building. How do we as a society change ourselves and change the way we behave towards others and towards animals other than ourselves for that matter? If we are always looking down on people or on animals as species, haven't we learned anything yet from this pandemic?
how will we change? Things are not going to be as they were. It doesn't matter how many states reopen. It doesn't matter if the whole world reopens. The truth of the matter is, is that things will not be as they were. One of my concerns is that I do not think that we have done enough reflection. Some of us have. A lot of us have, I would imagine. But I am concerned that we, in general, as a planet, have not done enough reflecting on the position that we are in and how we will try to move ourselves in the right direction. Hopefully that will be moving ourselves forward after this is all over. And by the way, it may not be all over. It is possible that we may be living with this virus in our societies for the rest of our days. After all, there is still no vaccine for the HIV virus, which was a virus that came around in the 1980s, but could have come around as early as the 1950s, according to some published reports. What if it is true that we will be living with the COVID-19 coronavirus for the rest of our lives in terms of it living among us? When was the last time you hugged somebody? When was the last time you hugged somebody in your family? When was the last time you kissed somebody? Had sex with somebody? Comforted somebody? Embraced somebody? Have we reflected? When was the last time you spoke to somebody? Have we comforted? When was the last time you laughed with somebody? Have we lived? All of the mixed messages that we are getting in the United Kingdom and in the United States from government officials has been one of the most problematic things of all around this coronavirus, to say the very least. Here in the United States, it has been full throttle, deliberate confusion, deliberate mixed messaging, deliberate double speak on the order of George Orwell. Orwellian proportions, indeed. Trump with officials in the cabinet briefing room not wearing masks, not sufficiently physically distancing, all the while, all the while, you have these conflicting things going on. And again, 
I contend that these are all deliberately done. On the one hand, you have Trump and other officials in the White House not wearing a mask, not socially or physically distancing. And he never really has done this at any of his ill-fated campaign rallies over the last couple of months. And then you have something like this going on. This is CNN Breaking News. To our viewers here in the United States and around the world, I'm Will Flitzer in Washington. This is a special edition of the Situation Room. There's breaking news we're following. We have just learned that the nation's top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, will be doing what's uh, described as a modified quarantine for two weeks because of exposure to a staffer over at the White House who in fact tested positive for the virus. We have also learned... So that is the mixed messaging that is going on. The mixed messaging coming out of the Trump White House and also, quite frankly, from the media. That is from the same Wolf Blitzer Situation Room program from Saturday. So now you've got Dr. Anthony Fauci doing a modified quarantine after being exposed to the very person who tested positive. Now, they did not say in that show who it was, but the speculation was that it was Katie Miller, who, by the way, is the spouse of Stephen Miller, the racist, who also works in the White House. Katie Miller is, I believe, the press secretary for Vice President Pence. And over the last two days, there have been at least three or four White House officials, aides to the president, including a naval officer, and also others, including an aide to Ivanka Trump, who have tested positive for coronavirus. As a result, Donald Trump and Mike Pence are being tested daily. And as a result, we've also had as I just said, Fauci under quarantine. Now he's beginning that. And also the FDA chief, Stephen Hahn, also going under two weeks of quarantine. And also CDC director Robert Redfield going under a two-week quarantine. Because all of these individuals have been exposed to those testing positive. And the... Strong speculation is that Katie Miller, Stephen Miller's wife, is the very person who is the one who has tested positive. How is a country going to feel confident? How is a nation going to feel confident when the very officials that are telling everybody to engage in physical distancing, to actually wash your hands and wash them with water and soap, to wear gloves and masks. And they don't even tell you to wear gloves. It's all about wearing the mask alone. I think they should be telling people to do both. I think people should wear gloves and masks if they have them, if they have access to them. 
If they can't wear a mask, then wear a scarf around your nose and mouth and even your neck if you can. And if you don't have the protective gloves, if you have gloves of your own at home, I would urge you to do that. But how can a country's individuals and communities ever feel confident when they're being told one thing by Trump and others and then they are seeing Trump and those very same others who are telling them to wear masks not wearing them themselves. These mixed messages are very dangerous. Then you see protesters not wearing masks, these racist demonstrators not wearing masks. People were speculating on CNN yesterday, well, why isn't Donald Trump not wearing a mask? Why isn't he doing that? I think the reason he's not wearing it is because he wants to show solidarity to his racist base, to these people who show up in Lansing, Michigan with a noose and swastikas and Confederate battle flags and guns. That is partly where I think this is going. I think that's all of where this is going. All of this for Donald Trump is one big campaign rally. It's always been about politics for him. From the moment he got sworn in after stealing the election, literally moments after his inauguration swear-in, there was a committee to elect this guy again and they were filing Trump 2020 re-election papers with the FEC, Federal Elections Commission. Michael Moore talked about this in his film, Fahrenheit 11.9. And you can go and watch that and you will see that portion in the film with the actual papers filed. This is something that's very serious. All of this for Donald Trump has been about politics. It has not been about health care. It has not been about protecting the welfare and safety and health of the average person in the United States of America. It has only been about, and it has always been about, protecting his bottom line and enhancing it, money. And also about him trying to stay in power beyond next January. I think that's... I think that's nakedly obvious, don't you? I think it's very plain to see. And I think it's very, very obvious indeed. Meanwhile, I wonder, what is Joe Biden doing exactly? What is Joe Biden doing By extension, I would ask, what is the Democratic Party doing? They have been oddly quiet over these last few weeks. But one place where they have not been quiet is in emails, looking for donations, looking for money, begging for money without hardly having done anything to really justify that money other than there's the guy in the White House who's destroying the country. 
which at this point is really all we need, actually, to mobilize against. Because there is no way on earth people can afford to sit out this election. Not even the privileged can, in my view. Although I know that they are able to, they are able to do that. But for the rest of us, no sitting out this time around. We've got to get out there and get registered to vote. When we all vote dot o-r-g and rock the vote dot o-r-g are the tools you will need also in case you may encounter difficulties on election day make sure that you jot down this number to call if you find any problems with voting if there's any issue where you're being blocked from voting or are unable to vote for some reason Please dial 866-O-U-R-V-O-T-E for help and assistance. The Election Protection Hotline. We need to start registering people to vote now and you can do so at whenweallvote.org. You can register yourself. You can check your own voter registration. You can do that twice a month. I recommend it right up until October, because if there are any other issues in October, you make sure that you find out in October whether or not you are still registered and make sure you make sure you get those things fixed, those issues fixed with your board of elections or your secretary of state right away so that you'll have enough time. So that by the time November 3rd comes, you will be registered. But get into the habit right now, right now in May of checking your voter registration if you are registered already. If you're not registered, check to see when you can register because there are elections going on this month still. The Democratic presidential primary is still very much a live election in lots of states over the next month or two. People are forgetting about that, at least in some places. You're not hearing about that. The New York State Democratic presidential election is back on as per a federal judge last week who ruled that it must go back on. Now, the New York Board of Elections in the state of New York is reportedly appealing it or considering an appeal. We'll see if that is successful or not, if they are indeed appealing it. But at the moment, that election is still going on and going forward on June the 23rd. Now is the time to check your voter registration if you're in New York or any of these other states. If you're in a state in this country that has not yet voted for in the Democratic presidential primary, make sure you check your voter registration. And even if you have voted already in a primary, make sure you check your voter registration. You can check it at whenweallvote.org. You can check it at rockthevote.org. And if you have children who are of voting age, 18 and above, and by the way, if you're going to turn 18 before the election, you can also vote as well. And you can check right now to see if you have voter registration. But the point is, is that if you do have children who are of voting age, make sure that you tell them about rockthevote.org. It's a 
website for voting and voting registration and instructions on when to vote, instructions on when your state is holding its election, and instructions on November 3rd and everything around it and how you can register to vote. And it's also geared to the youth, which we need to have, who we need to have to participate in this election. And I know people talk about the youth not being enthusiastic enough for Joe Biden, but we all have to vote. Otherwise, we will not have a planet to be enthusiastic about in the very near future. Welcome back. So I was speaking about mixed messages earlier. And here's a classic example of that. Mixed messages. So on CNN yesterday, there was discussion about Abbott Labs and the 15% false negatives that were coming from their tests of people for coronavirus. And it was Dr. Seema Yasmin who actually had to correct Wolf Blitzer on the air. Because Wolf Blitzer had said, well, 15% false, false positives. And thank goodness that Dr. Yasmin did that. And she corrected him. And she is someone who worked at the CDC before and is an epidemiologist and has worked in, in, in the discipline, um, studying all of these uh, viruses and things. And she's done this. And she um, is working, I believe, in Stanford, uh, Stanford University, uh, their research center there, if I'm not mistaken. But Dr. Yasmin had to correct Wolf Blitzer. That's a really important correction that she made. And that is something that the media has to be so very careful of when they are reporting, especially on 24-hour cable, they have got to say things that are accurate. Now, I know people make mistakes, but thank goodness for Dr. Yasmin for correcting Wolf Blitzer on a very important thing. False positives are one thing. But what is quite another is if you are told that you are negative and that you've tested negative for coronavirus when in fact you actually have the virus and are positive. So while people on CNN were having a conversation about Abbott Labs and the fact that it is indeed a 15, has a 15% false negative rate, which is really high, by the way. This is Abbott Labs, the same company that the Trump administration has been promulgating, has been supporting, has been touting. Oh, yes, Abbott Labs will have a quick test system, a quick test turnaround, and it's really reliable. Yeah. In a coronavirus epidemic, pandemic rather, trust me, a 15% false negative rate is not indicative of a reliable test or a reliable testing system. So on the very same network where people are talking about the fact that there is a 15% false negative rate for Abbott lab tests 
and on the very same network where people are saying, well, you really shouldn't use the Abbott lab tests because of the fact that they are 15% false negatives. CNN, the same network, decides to run an ad from the very same company, Abbott Labs, in the very same segment. (laughs) You cannot make this up, and I am not making this up. Here is the ad. This virus is testing all of us. And it's testing the people on the front lines of this fight most of all. So Abbott is getting new tests into their hands, delivering the critical results they need. And until this fight is over, we will never quit. Because they never quit. The tests they need, the reliable tests they need, the great tests they need. They need. <laughs> I, I really hesitate. I shouldn't be laughing because it is not funny. This is Abbott Labs doing a actual, doing an actual commercial on the same network for the same program, the Situation Room, where people are talking about how unreliable. Abbott Labs tests are that they have a 15% false negative rate. And there's an ad that you just heard in that same block on that same network for that same program. There's an ad for Abbott Labs. If that is not mixed messaging coming out of a corporate news media network, then I truly do not know what is. Here's one other thought. I think, and I felt this for quite some time now, that the number of people in this country who have passed away from this virus. And when I say this country, I'm referring to the U.S. of A. The number of people who have passed away, I think is a whole lot higher than the 78,000 number that we have been told by Johns Hopkins. First of all, I would ask, Johns Hopkins, do they have any connections or ties to other companies or corporate companies. Why are we using Johns Hopkins numbers? I mean, I'm not saying that Johns Hopkins doesn't have some good numbers and doesn't have some good research and doesn't have anything reliable, but why are we relying on those numbers? When it is so obvious, and even it's being said in the corporate news media now on television, that the number is likely far higher than the 78,000. Should we be telling these networks of 24-hour cable news not to put these numbers up anymore? Or is that a dangerous thing to do because people will start to forget? By rushing back blindly to try to work and try to revive an economy where 
none of the states in this country have met the guidelines from the CDC. Their own basic, flimsy, minimal guidelines have not been met by any state. Yet 47 of these states at last count, 47 out of 50 states are reopening by today. The 14-day decline in cases and in deaths of people has not been reached by any of those 47 states. So why are they opening? I think I may have answered that earlier on in this episode. But the question remains even beyond the idea of trying to push an economy back into gear is why are people doing something that they cannot force people to do? You cannot force an economy to revive itself. You have to take measures to protect the people who are going to be the very engine of that economy you seek to revive. You have to spend money to make an economy work. And why do you have to spend money to make an economy work? Well, it's not about just the people spending money as consumers. It is about the government and other partners in private entities spending money on improving the health of those very prospective companies, rather those prospective consumers that you want to see energizing the economy. As I said earlier, we have not really reflected as deeply and as long as we should here in the United States. We have not talked about the costs of mental health. We have not talked about money to be spent on infrastructure. We have not talked about dealing with the fact that the testing is still terrible in this country. We have not dealt with the traumatic effects of this. We have not talked enough about the healthcare worker who is going through all kinds of trauma right now, seeing people die, holding them as they expire, witnessing their, them taking their last breath, witnessing colleagues die, seeing body bags all over wards of hospitals. All of a sudden, we're not talking about that anymore. We're barely talking about it to begin with out of one, outside one or two news stories. But now there's no talk about it anymore. No talk about the nurses. There's one or two stories you see in the Washington Post about the National Nurses United who are demonstrating outside the White House for PPE. But that is not getting covered like these racist, violent demonstrators are getting covered. Why is the media giving, speaking of mixed messaging, why is the media giving all the airtime to them and not to the healthcare workers that they claim are heroes, that they champion as heroes? All of a sudden, you notice now the coverage, as I've said before, is shifted completely from the healthcare workers and the PPE that they still need and are not getting and to all of the concerns from the front line workers in the grocery stores and elsewhere to the business models, to the fact that the unemployment rate has gone, gone through the roof, the fact that, oh, we need to open up and rush back in. How can you rush back into something when you have not solved or even looked to solve the problems? 
the problems that have existed prior to this pandemic. There are surely more than 78,000 people who have died in the United States from this coronavirus. You should add to that total all the people who have not been tested and who may have died. You should add to that total of 78,000 all of those people who did not go to the hospital because they were told not to unless they had some severe chest pains and couldn't breathe. You should add to that total people who didn't go to the hospital because they feared deportation. You should add to that total people who didn't go to the hospital because they had no health insurance. You should add to that total the homeless. You should add to that total prisoners. You should add to that total detainees. You should add to that total all the people held in the concentration camps in the southern border of this country. You should add to that total grocery workers and healthcare workers who have been dying in very high numbers and are not being reported. You should add to that total anybody who has not been accounted for, people who have died in their homes. You cannot tell me that in a population of 328 million people, that only 1.5 million of them have been infected with this highly contagious virus. It just cannot be true that with a highly contagious, very dangerous virus, such as this COVID-19 coronavirus, you cannot tell me that in a country of that number of people, that only 1.5 million of them have been infected? I don't think so. Therefore, you can also not tell me that only 78,000 people have died from that virus in this country. If I'm adding in all of those groups of people that I have just told you about, and also not to mention all the black people who haven't been tested, all the Latinos who have not been tested beyond the people I've talked about, all the people in those groups who do not have health care because of the structural racism in this country and because of the poverty and the structures that engender and create a system of poverty in the country, that number of 78,000 becomes something like 5 million that number becomes something possibly on the order of 10 million people who could be dead right now in the United States because of complications related to coronavirus. That virus may have been the factor, ultimately. You've got governors like those in Florida, like Governor DeSantis, who doesn't want to include numbers of people dying in his state who aren't from his state. Talk about outside agitators. Now, we don't want them as part of the dead in our state. They're just outside agitators. They just came here to our state of Florida from New York. Notice he doesn't say any other state. It's usually New York, New Jersey, or Connecticut. Those are the three states if he says that many. But it's usually New York, a code word. 
Never mind the fact that most of the retirees from Florida or in Florida are from the tri-state area, are from New York. Give me a break. But, you know, we don't want them on our death rolls because we want to trim our list of dead people. But like I've said before, I can assure you, if those individuals, and I'm sure they did, participated in your economy, you'd include them. You wouldn't exclude their monetary purchases and contributions to your economics, would you? To your economic totals. Once again, proof that America loves to put profits over people. There is no doubt in my mind. Now look I don't have the proof. Or the evidence. But there is no doubt in my mind. That. 78 or 79,000 people. Is the low end. Of this actual count. Of those who have passed away. From this virus. For goodness sake you had Roy Horn. Of Sieg, as Siegfried and Roy. You remember Siegfried and Roy. You remember Siegfried and Roy. They, of course, were the duo who would perform at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas with their famous, I guess, Bengali Tiger. They were a, a, an act for years, a tourist attraction all around the world. Roy Horn himself was mauled by one of those tigers about 10 or 12 years or so ago, maybe a bit longer than that ago. And of course, that that really did change things for them. And then they soon after stopped touring. And then come to find out over the weekend, Roy Horn died from coronavirus. You cannot tell me that this is only 78, 79,000 people. And that's a staggering number of people, far more than anywhere else on the planet. Half of those are from New York State alone. And with the fact that none of these states that are reopening today have met the CDC guidelines and those guidelines have been scrapped and you've got people in the White House not wearing masks. Add to that that there's no real testing protocol in any of these states and only a few cities have had testing. San Francisco now has testing. But the, provi the proviso is, well, you've got to be exposed to the virus. Well, I think we're all exposed to the virus, aren't we? And there's asymptomatics all over the place. Katie Miller in the White House, who I've talked about earlier, who is the, the spouse of Stephen Miller, she was an asymptomatic. She had no symptoms. She was tested positive, as I said earlier. Don't we have to assume, as I've said in many other episodes, that we all have this virus? I'm not trying to alarm people, but I'm just trying to get real with people. And I don't think that we have been told the real deal by many of the elected officials around the country, much less Donald Trump. We need to be told the truth. And I think one person that is doing that is Dr. Fauci. One person that is doing that is Dr. Amy Acton. This is no small thing that we are doing together. It is so incredibly hard to, to have shut down our lives the way we have. I am absolutely certain 
you will look back and know that you helped save each other. This is Dr. Amy Acton, director of the Ohio Department of Health. Trademark lab coat, emphatic hand gestures, and a knack for metaphors. It's like Swiss cheese. So I want you to picture a hurricane. When you have a fire on your stove and you have your kitchen extinguisher, you want to get it quick. You may not have seen her press briefings, but in Ohio, they've become a daily ritual, catapulting her from unknown local official to cult icon. In her youth, Dr. Acton overcame neglect and homelessness on her way to being crowned homecoming queen. And last year, she became the first woman appointed to run Ohio's health department. Under her, Ohio has become a leader in responding to COVID. It declared a state of emergency with just three confirmed cases. And it was the first state to shut down schools. Later that same week, some governors were still proudly eating in packed restaurants. And Dr. Acton issued a stay-at-home order affecting more than 11 million people when the death toll was still just three. So how did Dr. Acton do it? To find out, we watched more than seven weeks of press briefings and we noticed themes that, well, let's just say other leaders should pay attention to. First up, she empowers us. Take a look at this clip from the day Dr. Acton issued that stay-at-home order. I don't want you to be afraid. I am not afraid. I'm determined, but I need you to do everything. I want you to think about the fact that this is our one shot in this country. All of us are going to have to sacrifice. And I know someday we'll be looking back and wondering what was it we did in this moment. Of her 65 words there, 12 are pronouns. Her repeated use of I tells us she's in it with us. She's taking ownership. Her use of you makes the audience feel a connection with her, even though we're watching from home. Toward the end, she switches from singular to collective pronouns, signaling that she's just like us and we're in it together. She's in charge, yet she's made us feel like the heroes. There are everyday heroes everywhere. We know that not all heroes wear capes. You're heroic when you stay at home and watch your neighbor who's a nurse's child. I know you're all donning those capes in big ways and small ways. Please help us. Thank you. Ohioans were inspired, not just to stay at home, but to spread her messages to each other. Another theme of Dr. Acton's briefings is brutal honesty. And to understand this one, we have to take you back to mid-April. People were getting restless wondering when things would get back to normal. So I do hope no one at home thinks like it's wide open May 1st, going back to life as normal. The rules have changed and they're not gonna be quite the same. Life will be different uh, for quite some time to come and maybe in some ways that are permanent. She's preparing us for the long haul, even if it's not what we wanna hear. It's really hard to hear that, but we are not going back to six months ago. That, that's not the reality we all face. This is something she does a lot, actually. Setting up bad news with a warning. Ohioans, you know, I know that's hard to take. I know that's a hard truth for people because we want there to be a right answer in a right way. And I know this is a deep breath we all must take. Dr. Acton's also honest about what she doesn't know. We have to be very clear and transparent with you. All of these numbers are a gross underestimation and we have no real idea of the prevalence 
of this infection yet. A lot of leaders just avoid talking about uncertainty, but when Dr. Acton repeatedly says, We don't know. It's actually calming to hear her admit what we all feel deep down, that we just don't have the full story. And finally, Dr. Acton sees vulnerability as a strength. After watching dozens of hours of briefings, there was one word we kept hearing over and over. Please just acknowledge and give a name to what you're going through. Acknowledge it with each other. And so I just want to acknowledge that these are, are still really tough times. This is wearing on all of us. And I just want to acknowledge that. I just want to acknowledge that all of us are feeling this. It's such an... Dr. Amy Acton, who is the head of the Ohio Health Department. The other voice you heard, I believe there, was Sonia Dasani. And I want to thank her, and I want to thank Adam Westbrook, and I want to thank them both. They are producers of that video, and I didn't play the entire thing, but you can see that in full at the New York Times website, and the title of the article, and it's an opinion story, The Leader we wish we all had. Dated May the 5th, 2020, from the New York Times. Both Adam Westbrook and Sanya Dasani are producers with Opinion Video. And you should really watch that video. In full. I played you roughly four and a half, maybe five minutes. It's over six plus minutes. And I do urge you to watch it. Again, the article, the leader we wish we all had. Dr. Amy Acton is the antidote to all of the mixed messages that you have been receiving from some of your governors out there, if you are listening to this in the United States, or from certainly, definitely from Donald Trump and the officials around him in the federal government. We need more individuals like Amy Acton who send clear messages, whether it is a Dr. Anthony Fauci, whether it is somebody like a Dr. Sanjay Gupta. We need more of these individuals. And more than that, we need to have the medical professionals and the scientists do these daily briefings. There has been this clash between science and politics, and that should never be a clash in any civilized society. It should be a no contest. Science wins every day of the week. But we have had a situation here in the United States where politics and the desire to win an election and campaign during a pandemic that's killing at least double the amount of people that we are being told is killing here in the U.S. is the thing that Donald Trump is much more interested in. And I think had the focus been about the medical side of this, at these campaign rally briefings and not the campaign rally side and the re-election 
bid, I think there'd be far fewer people dying here in the U.S. from this virus. Dr. Amy Acton. The clear message, the clarity, the honesty, the truth. That is leadership. And we are lacking that in a number of places in governments in this country, whether it is the Alabama governor, Kay Ivey, whether it is the Iowa governor, Kim Reynolds, or the South Dakota governor, Kristi Noem, or the Georgia governor, Brian Kemp, or the Mississippi governor. I can go on and on. They're all Republican governors. I can name all of them. And we really can do without having Governor Cuomo, the Democratic governor of New York, on television every day now. I want to see Dr. Amy Acton on television every day instead. That video, audio clip that I just played you, we should be hearing from her. We should see her on television all over the country, not just in the state of Ohio. Granted, New York, of course, is a place where most people have lost their lives in this country to this virus. I want to see someone, though, who is a scientist getting the prominence. Not just Dr. Fauci, not just someone like Dr. Sanjay Gupta, but I want to see someone like Dr. Amy Acton. I want to see someone like a Dr. Cindy Duke. I want to see someone like that, or someone like the doctor who got some brief prominence, who is part of the National Institutes of Health with Dr. Fauci. I wanted to see her get more prominence. Kismetia Corbett, the doctor there at the NIH. We need individuals who are going to be truth tellers. We do not need contemptuous governors who on the surface are saying good things and sound like leaders, but when you find out Underneath the surface, they have cut Medicaid in their budget for the very people who are suffering the most in their state, who need help. The dismissiveness that comes from Governor Cuomo. We need to have less of him on television, in our national television, and more of Dr. Amy Acton. She should be getting a whole lot more visibility as should others. We need to have more compassion and love and empathy in this world. And we need it now. We do not need mixed messages. I'm Omar Moore. Thank you for listening to The Politocrat.